And this morning we're going to see uh, Jesus quite literally give voice to the voiceless, but we're also going to see uh, that while Jesus might be for everyone, not everyone is going to get on board with Jesus. And we're going to see three ways uh, that you can have Jesus right in front of you and completely miss him. I don't always do this, but I'll tell you up front, here's what my three uh, points are going to be, uh, and, and this, is, this is where we're going for the next, the next 40 minutes or so. Um, three, three ways that you can have Jesus right in front of you and completely miss him. One of those is you don't understand what it is that you are seeing. The second is you don't believe what you're seeing. And the third is that you don't live out what you've seen. And so we're going to see all three of those type of people talked about here by Jesus based around one very small, very quick uh, uh, event. I mean, it's just, it's just going to be super quick. Uh, but, but so much is going to flow out of this one event for us to uh, learn. So let's jump right in, uh, and we're going we're gonna to hear from those that I, I assume Luke is talking to that either saw this or were the ones that were, were there, that people that saw Jesus with their own eyes, saw him do things with, the, with their own eyes, and then had to try and figure out what do we do with what we just saw. Let's see the event that becomes the catalyst for so much disbelief among these people. Luke chapter 11, verse 14. Now he, this is Jesus, now he was casting out a demon that was mute. And when the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke and the people marveled. That's it. That's the miracle. That's the event that drives the rest of uh, our narrative that we have here. Uh, he was healing people. We've talked about healings. We've talked about miracles. We've talked about demon possession. We've talked about all those as we've gone through the book of Luke, and I don't want to rehash all of those. Uh, but this is what is happening. Jesus cast out a demon that was keeping a man from speaking, and then he was just able to speak. That is the, the whole thing. Notice no one balks as, uh, at, at what they saw. Everyone marveled at what had happened. So that's important for us to, to see here. No one was questioning it. Questioning it. The, the, the question that follows isn't, can we believe what happened? But instead, it was, what do we do with what we just saw? All right? That's a different type of, uh, of unbelief. Typically, when we think of unbelief, it, we, we think of it in the way that, uh, that we see something, if we, like we see a magic trick, Right? And so we see a magic trick and we say, there has to be something else going on here. I don't believe that that woman just popped out of that box and wasn't there before. I just don't know the trick. That is not the case here. What they are saying is, I know what just happened. I've never heard that man's voice, but I've seen him my whole life. And now I know what he sounds like. Something just happened. Everybody marvels at that. The question then becomes, what do I do with what I just saw happen? Um, so, 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 so they had no doubt at what they had just seen. They were just trying to figure out what category uh, it goes in. And religion can be like that for some people. They see things within churches uh, when people become Christians and how God can change someone's life or how being a part of a church and see a, seeing a church love one another or, or how someone can forgive someone else of something terrible. And they, they, they see that happen and they, they can't deny the presence of something that they cannot uh, explain. 
but they also don't really have a category for it in their own lives. They aren't quite sure what to do with the church. They aren't quite sure what to do with Jesus. This is what happened to these people that saw Jesus do things they had no category for. So they came up uh, with a couple of their own categories, and Jesus is going to very directly address those, kind of intuit what, uh, or, or just divinely know what it is that they had, uh, or that they were thinking, and he's going to address those things. Uh, and these categories are still around for a lot of people today. So look at verse 15. Some of them said, he cast out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, while others, uh, while others to test him kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. So two different types of people there that are talking about what they've just seen. The, the, the first is a people who don't understand what they've just seen because they are going to credit it not to Jesus's power, but to Beelzebul or the devil or Satan or whatever title you want to give him. Uh, they're going to credit it not to Jesus, but to him. And the others, uh, they, they, are, they, don't, they just flat out don't believe what they saw. And we'll get to them here in just a, a second because they're going to demand further signs from Jesus. So first, let's talk about those uh, who don't understand what they see. They've seen the miracle. They're trying to figure out how to categorize it. And they say the only way that this itinerant uh, rabbi, non-Pharisee, non-priest, non-lawyer, non-religious elite, non-like like high up there guy, ranking official, this just this this carpenter that that is that, that that is basically homeless and roaming the countryside preaching, the only way that this guy could do something like this is if this man was under the power of the devil himself. That is the only way that he could perform these tasks. And Jesus has a response for these words, or for, for, for these people. And he minces no words here. I love Jesus' response. You don't always see Jesus talk trash, but he's going to talk trash just a little bit here uh, to these guys. Here's what he says. But he, this is verse 17. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul, and I, if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil." Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Now, that may not sound like trash talk, but whenever you break down what it is that Jesus is saying here, I think you're going to be able to, uh, to see this. So Jesus tells uh, these would-be slanderers that are trying to attribute Jesus' power to uh, Satan, uh, he, he says, what you're suggesting, people makes absolutely no sense. Now, logically, we can follow uh, where Jesus is, is going here. He, he, he says, I can give you all kinds of reasons why uh, my power uh, or why, why me and why Satan are not in cahoots. Jesus says, I can give you all kinds of reasons why we are not on the same team. But the simplest and the most obvious reason is this. I just beat him. Y'all, everybody saw it. I just beat him. I cast out the demon from this guy who could not speak, and then he could speak, and you guys all saw it, and you went, whoa. And that is Jesus' like main argument here. You want evidence that we're not on the same team? I just beat him. 
If we were on the same team, then why would I do that? Why wouldn't I use my power, if if Satan and I are on the same team, why wouldn't I use my power to strengthen this guy and, and, and the possession that he is under from Beelzebul? Jesus says that would be dumb for me to defeat him. It would be better if we united forces and then we would truly be strong. That's essentially Jesus' argument. Uh, And they don't really have a comeback for this. They're like, oh, okay, that's a good point. Uh, That's basically what they say. But Jesus keeps going. He says, not only do I not need Satan's powers to do all of this, not only do I not need uh, the, the, the power of Satan... Uh, that would actually be a step down in power for me if I were to unite with him. That would actually be me taking a step down from what I am. If I were using Satan's power, it would be like me choosing to like, like use a middle schooler to go and wrestle the rock or something. It would be like, there's no point in doing this because the, like, the, the mismatch is so great. Why would I partner with this guy? Because Satan is not going to help me because of the level of my power. I don't need Satan's power to do what you guys just saw me do. I am the strong man in this scenario, not Satan. This word Beelzebul that that, that keeps being used here, this was a common name for for Satan or the devil at the time. Uh, Kind of the the, the chief demon is what it says here. But the, the word literally means master of the house. It literally means master of the house, and it's a word that had kind of been co-opted to be a, like another nickname for, uh, for Satan. So Jesus decides to use that imagery that comes along with that nickname. And he says, Beelzebul, the master of the house, is probably feeling pretty good about himself. You can imagine he feels good about himself. He stands outside the door of his house. He is a strong man. He has armor. He's ready to do battle with anybody that shows up. Which is all well and good until a stronger man shows up. And when the stronger man shows up, beats him up, and then plunders his house, then we'll see who the strong man is. Then Jesus says, I am that man. I am the strongest man. Satan looks big and bad and tough until I show up, and then I take away his armor, lock him in a closet, and he does exactly what I tell him to do, and I'll take his house and all of his goods too. If you're not following me, what, he, what Jesus is saying, I'm the strong man who takes what I please from Satan. I think he's such a cool flex. I think he's such a cool like, like, hey, so you think you're good, you think you're strong, I just beat you, I just whipped you, and I took back what belongs to me. I took back this man you had possessed, and I brought him to the kingdom of God. Who is the strong guy? Who's the strong one? This is basically what Jesus uh, is saying. Satan thinks he's big and strong and a tough guy, and perhaps he looks and acts uh, like it, and he might be stronger than a lot of people. But I'll tell you... But he says, I'll take what I want from him, and you know what? I'll do it with my pinky finger. This is not like a hard task for Jesus to do this. Do you see that phrase in there? He He says, if I do this with the finger of God. So so like he's, he's not just saying, I'm stronger than Satan is. He's saying, I can whip him with my little finger. I can take him 
down. We only see that phrase, finger of God, two other times. One, once is whenever the Ten Commandments are given and we're told that, that, that God himself writes the Ten Commandments with his finger, the finger of God, he inscribes the Ten Commandments on the tablet uh, for Moses. And the other one uh, is, it, it, it comes from the, the magicians in Exodus, whenever they are, uh, they're trying to, to, to match the things that, that, that Moses is doing. So you remember uh, Moses throws down his, his, his rod, turns to a snake, and they're like, oh, I got something for that. They throw down something, it turns into a snake, and it's like, it's like the kind of lame version of what Moses had just did, but it's good enough that Pharaoh's like, see, I've got magicians that can do this. And then they turn the, 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 then the first plague hits, and, and the Nile turns to blood. And somehow these magicians are able to, uh, to match that plague. And so Pharaoh doesn't really listen. He's like, you're doing nothing that my, my magicians can't do. And then the second plague hits, and it's the plague of frogs. And all these frogs come on, and somehow these magicians are able to do something similar to get all the, the frogs to come on. But then you get to the third plague, and that's the plague of gnats. And the gnats start coming on, and these guys are like, all right, we're tapped out. We've, we've used every trick in the bag that we've got. Whatever it is that this Moses guy is doing, it's not magic. This comes from the finger of God. That's, that's the phrase that they use. That's the only other time that we see uh, that phrase. And they told Pharaoh, this isn't magic. This is God. We can't match this one. Only God can do this. Only Yahweh can do this. That's in Exodus chapter 8 if you want to look that up. So Jesus can strong arm Satan and all his demons with his finger. It's October, uh, which, which means that it is uh, officially spooky season. The rest of you guys get to kind of like catch up with, 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 with me and my family who have had our decorations out in our yard for, for a little while now. We, we like Halloween at our house. We have a lot of fun with it, uh, and, and uh, we, we like to, to kind of just, just laugh about a lot of stuff and have fun with it, but... As much as we like that, we don't really get into, like, the horror movies. Uh, we've got a few movies that we watch, but we don't get into the, uh, the scary movies uh, too much. Uh, but without fail, when you get into these Halloween movies, you get movies like The Exorcist, which I think there's, like, a new one that's coming out uh, this, this week, maybe. I don't know, this month at some point. There's another Exorcist coming out. I've never actually seen this movie, but I know... The, 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 the cliche that is in there. And if you watch any of these movies, if religion is brought into it at all, you will probably get the same kind of scene, which is the priest shows up, who who's, shows up and kind of thinks he can, he can take down this possessed person, shows up and he starts waving a, a, a crucifix around and throwing water on him and doing all this stuff. And it ends up being this like battle royale between the demon-possessed person and the priest who's trying to cast out the demon. And inevitably, the, the, the priest is going to get put up against a wall somewhere, right? That always happens in, in these things. And so the priest gets put up against the wall and then runs out of the house scared. And the demon has triumphed and they have won. And that can give us a false impression and think that this is how it was for Jesus whenever he was casting out demons. That it was this like mono e mono kind of getting after it. They were fighting one another, one another and, and that this plot device that's in these movies is actually kind of how it, it plays out. Don't mistake scary movies for the truth of Scripture, though. 
There is no throwdown between the spiritual supremacy of Jesus and Satan. There is no like like clash of powers and we'll see who's going to win this. Jesus says, out. And the demon's out. Jesus, he says the finger of God here, but that's, I mean, that's kind of like a, a euphemism. Like all throughout the book of Luke, what we've seen is Jesus just says it. The power of his word is enough. And at no point do we see the demons fight back, even legion, for we are many. Whenever Jesus says, do something, they don't fight back, they beg for mercy. And they're like, just cast us over into these pigs, please. But they're not fighting back. A legion of demons, and Jesus says, you do this. And they're like, okay, 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 we'll do exactly what you say, but can you do this over here? Like, there is no battle here. And that's important for us to know. Because while we wage war against the unseen, against the principalities and the powers, and while that war is raging all around us and we see that truth that is, that is out there that we live in, let's not have uh, the, 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 the thought process that this is like we're trading blow for blow and we just hope that Jesus lands the last one. Jesus is fully in control here. He does what he pleases. So Jesus responds to those that want to put him in this category of a friend of Satan. And he says, in effect, do you see what I just did to him and how I did it? I just whipped the devil. And if I were on his team, I wouldn't do that. We are not on the same team. You need to come up with a different category. So he addresses those that I would call those the slanderers that try to take him down and say something different about him. Now skip down with me to verse 29 and we're going to look at the skeptics, those that don't believe what they see. Luke eleven twenty nine through 32. When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given, it, given to it except the sign of Jonah. For... A, For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she comes from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. So Jesus switches to this second objection. He switches to this, uh, this other group, uh, and he says, uh, I, I've just cast out the, the, the demon, but for this crowd, it's not enough. They've seen it. They saw what happened, but it's not, uh, it's not enough. They need to see something else. And I can only guess that Jesus has got to be pretty frustrated at this point. He's done multiple miracles for those that have been following around him. He just did one in front of them where everyone marveled. No one questioned. There was no questions whether or not what had just actually happened happened. So so it's not that they didn't believe what they saw. But what they saw was not enough for them to believe. Does that make sense? It's not so much that they didn't believe what they saw, but that what they saw was not enough for them to believe. And this is true of where many people will put Jesus. 
It does not matter how much proof you give them. It doesn't matter how many apologetics arguments you can win with them. It doesn't matter how you can reason from this to that or you can go over some different things. I, I, I was, was having a conversation this week and I was talking about, uh, I was talking about how uh, we, we were looking, looking at a football field, and we were talking about how the football field is, is so intricately designed. It's got the yards. It's got the out-of-bounds markers. It's been clearly lined off. It's been uh, established, the bounds of it. You've got the goalpost on either end. You have, you have a lot of design that went into a football field. And when somebody sees that football field, nobody says, huh, look at this random like, group of lines that showed up on the field. Wonder how all those got there. No, they say somebody designed this football field. Why? Because there's design. And then when you look at the human body and you look at what how complicated the human body is, but how there is clearly design that is there, somehow we look at that and we can say, huh, look at that random group of cells that just decided to do this thing. There's design there. But you can give a clear argument like that. You can you can walk through every apologetic argument that you want. And sometimes it's just never going to be enough for people. That is just the truth of, it, of all this. It just doesn't matter. You can walk through all of it, and it just won't be enough. There's no amount of things that can happen or stories that can be told that will just simply move a skeptic from being a skeptic to a believer. Jesus tells them that they can ask for all the signs they want. It will never be enough, and he knows it will, be en- it will never be enough. So he says, you're going to get one sign. You're going to get one sign, and you need to be looking for it. And if you aren't looking for it, and if you miss it, then those of you that are sitting here with me watching this, you will have the ghost of the past that will condemn you. Because the queen of the south, the queen of Sheba, sought out Solomon because of his wisdom. And I'm right here in front of you, and all you can do is be a skeptic. And you won't seek me out for my wisdom. The people of Nineveh heard Jonah and they repented. And I'm right here. Yet you won't repent. And I'm greater than Solomon and I'm greater than Jonah. That's the two things that that he gives. He says that Jonah went to Nineveh and preached the worst evangelistic message in history. Have you ever thought about that? Jonah goes, like, like we, we talk about like, like preaching a revival or preaching, like we think about Billy Graham preaching in, a, uh, in like stadiums and delivering sermons and trying to be persuasive to people to get them to repent. Jonah shows up in Nineveh and he says, 40 days, y'all are going to be wiped out. That's his message. He's got nothing else. He's not really interested in them coming to God. That is all that his message is. You all got 40 days, and then God is going to wipe you out. That's his big revival speech. But God softened their their hearts, and when they heard Jonah's message, they turned to God. If God is working in your life and you are listening, then a sermon as bad as Jonah's is all you need. So Jesus says, look, if they heard Jonah... And yet you can sit here and listen to me day in and day out, yet you don't respond. What else do you need? If if the queen of Sheba heard from Solomon and, and she respected what he said, sought him out, traveled for months to hear his wisdom, and yet here I am with you day in, day out, yet you don't listen to me, how much more will you be judged? Jesus' whole point is that for a skeptic, 
Nothing is enough. But Jesus is greater than Jonah, and Jesus is greater than Solomon. For those that see that, for those that will see who he truly is, that will respond to the wisdom and the message of Jesus, when they see him, they believe what they see. Those are the ones that will be blessed. And in addressing the slanderers and the skeptics, he, he makes these kind of two points and, and, and draws them out. He says in verse 23, back up in verse 23, he says, He who isn't with me is against me. There is no neutrality when it comes to Jesus. The nature of who he is demands we do something with him. You cannot simply shrug your shoulders and say, Eh, seems like a nice guy. Eh, seems like a good teacher. And then in verse 32, Jesus says kind of poetically that the men of Nineveh will judge those that have sought to categorize Jesus and have gotten him wrong. Those men got it right with such a simple message from Jonah. How much more will we be condemned that witness the works of Jesus? Or for us here today that have the four gospels, that have the testimony of the word of God, that can stand on that, that have an empty tomb that should that should push us and persuade us to believe, how much more will we be judged if we don't? There is no neutrality. Jesus' message is too clear, his death too powerful, and his resurrection too incredible to look at those things, just shrug our shoulders and move on. And then in all of this teaching, Jesus addresses a third type of person with two kind of like random stories sandwiched in the middle of what we've covered uh, here so far. Not, not directly like the other two, but still, I think, a, a, an important word for us to hear this morning. Kind of odd and obscure stories here. Jesus is teaching, uh, and, and, and the, he, he's like right in the middle of teaching, and, and he's, he's giving one lesson, and then as he's giving that lesson, he gets, he gets interrupted by uh, a woman yelling from the crowd. So let's see his first teaching here in verse 24. And I think we will, ha- we will have a lot we can take from, from what it is Jesus is teaching here. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest. And finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. And then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of the person is worse than the first. Now there is a lot here. I'll be completely honest. I'm not 100% sure what to do with all of it. Uh, about this, how a spirit is wandering and going through the deserts and trying to find rest and all those things. My demonology here's what's going on here, and so I don't want to pretend that I know everything that Jesus is saying or uh, or teaching here. But I but I do understand. I think at least part of what Jesus is trying to teach us. The picture Jesus gives us is of someone that has evicted one spirit only for that one to come back with seven more. And the illustration is, uh, is that while the, the demon may have been told to take a hike, that if that, if that person, uh, that, that, that person kind of cleans up their life, em- empties things out, says that demon is gone, takes care of things, cleans the house, if something else hasn't come to take up residence in that person's life, then they are ripe for a takeover. Being cleansed of the unclean spirit was only half the battle. 
You cannot simply eliminate something from your life, an unclean spirit as Jesus teaches here, or some type of sin. You can't simply eliminate something from your life because that is only part of the battle. The rest of the battle is what happens after you uproot that thing out of your life, which leads us to the third type of unbelief. You don't live out what you have seen. It's one thing to clean out the pantry of all the junk food that you have uh, in the cabinet so that you can lose some weight. That's a good idea. If you're trying to lose weight, that's a good place to start. Get rid of the Pop-Tarts. That's a good place to get things, uh, get things going. But empty cupboards by themselves are not going to uh, keep the weight off. Because what happens is you're going to go back to the grocery store. And when you go back to the grocery store, you've got to decide, am I buying celery or am I buying Oreos? Right? You've got to decide which one is going in the cart. Am I getting what is good for me or am I going to go back and am I going to get the things that I just got rid of? You may have gotten rid of the old stale cookies, but that just means you've got an opportunity to buy some fresh ones and make a new start with those. The implications for this are endless, but the principle is the same. If you're going to get rid of one thing, you've got to replace it with another. Let, let me kind of, let, let me let you in on, on a bit of a, not a secret, but kind of a peek behind the curtain in, in my philosophy of how I preach and how I teach and how I do ministry. And this, it's a huge factor in, in all of this. I am not afraid to stand up here and preach against sin. I glad to do it. Maybe I should do it even more than I do. But if you spend any time at Providence, you're going to see that I don't spend the bulk of my time railing against specific sins or, 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 or these like pet sins and saying, don't do this and don't do that and don't do this and don't do that. I don't spend a lot of time saying, don't do this thing because it's bad. I don't say, don't steal from people because that's bad. Because I know that delivering that message will only go so far. Because it will also leave a a vacuum, a, a void. And if I spend my whole ministry saying, don't do these things, then chances are you're going to end up doing them anyway. And if if you do manage to avoid them, in the end, it's not going to matter. Instead of giving you do's and don'ts and then railing and focusing on the don'ts, my preference is to, to try to show a better way because this, this is better for me to learn and to be a follower of Jesus. My preference is to show a better way that we are called to live, a better way of living in, in, in a way that is not just a matter of eliminating sin, but of embracing Jesus. That is not the same thing. For so many of us, we have been told our whole lives that, that the, the equivalent of, of, of loving Jesus is just, is just getting rid of sin. This is what we build accountability groups on. Is that if we, can, if we can be honest and we can say what it is that we're going through, what it is, then we can stop the sin. And you can stop the sin all you want. It doesn't mean that you love Jesus. And that is what we are called to do. There's a Puritan named Thomas Chalmers that wrote a book called, or uh, kind of an essay called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. And in, in this, the idea is the, the, the most effective way to beat sin is not to yell at it, 
but to embrace something that is more beautiful, more joyful, more life-giving, more hopeful, and then holding on to that. And in holding on to that, it will push out the sin from your life. Because you, you have embraced something better. You have not, as Jesus said here, left the house empty and ripe for takeover. A superficial change may momentarily stop the sin. But if a love of Jesus does not fill that void, the sin will come back as bad, if not worse, than before. This past six weeks, I've been on this journey with my, my shoulder, my arm, past six, eight weeks, whatever it's been. Uh, you know, I told you about this a, a couple of months ago. I ended up in the emergency room because when I woke up, I had this terrible pain that was shooting down my arm. Uh, I had all this stuff that, that was... Uh, that was going on with my arm. It was, it was very, very painful. I couldn't, for about two weeks, couldn't do more than just be on my back with my, my arm up above my, uh, my head. Pinched nerve is the official diagnosis. But when I initially started going to the doctor, what the doctor told me was, hey, I can give you some muscle relaxers. I can give you some pain meds here. Uh, if that will be helpful, I will give you that. But all that's going to do is mask the problem. All that's going to do is cover up the problem. And if I give you strong enough pain meds, then you won't know the problem. Because it's just hiding what is going on underneath. And so what he says is, so what he said is, you're going to have to figure out what that is. You may have to get some more, uh, like, like, like tests done. You may have to get an MRI done. You may have to go and figure out all this so that we can get to the source of the problem. Ended up going to a chiropractor, first time I'd ever done that. Got, got cracked a few different times, a few different ways. Did some like weird things with my, with my arm. And in doing so, what they were able to do is to nail down where that, that, that nerve was being pinched and then get that to release. And I don't need any pain meds. I don't need any muscle relaxers. Because they fixed the source of the problem. Do you see the difference in those two, th- two approaches? For so many people, for so long, we have been taught that Christianity is the same as pain management. It's sin management. Just, just take a Bible verse and call me in the morning. Cover it up, white knuckle it, hold on till the end of the day, don't sin, and then let's try it again tomorrow. And then we'll give you another Bible verse and see if that one takes it. But we have to get at the source of what is driving our sin. And if we get at the source of what is driving our sin, and then we embrace and we fill it with something better, then we're no longer just masking sin. We are pursuing something else. And so for me now, that means I've got to change up. I've got to do some exercise, and I've got to sleep different. And I've got to do some, some other things so that it doesn't come back. Because if I just keep doing the same thing I was doing before, I'm going to end up in the ER again. And this time it might be worse because I may have done more damage than I had the first time. Stopping sin is great. Loving Jesus is far better. One will last for a short term. The other will be a part of who we are for eternity. And then we have this odd, obscure story of a woman yelling out to Jesus while he is in the middle of this teaching uh, the, amen, the amen corner when you're preaching can be uh, a blessing or a curse. It just depends. But I promise you that if any of you yell out what this woman did to Jesus, I am not going to know what, you, what to do. Here's what she says. 
As he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to them, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast to which you nursed. And he said, Blessed uh, rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. So if any of y'all yell that out, I'm just going to be like, I'm out. I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. Um, but that, that, that's what they say. So blessed is your mom. It's a different, not how it normally sounds, but that's what they said. Um, it's a weird thing to shout. But Jesus isn't faced at all. He's immediately got to come back for it. Uh, and, and these last two stories kind of highlight for us these different types of, of unbelief. Some are slanderers, some are skeptics, and some have heard it all, seen it all, and maybe even, maybe even they got Jesus in the right category, but then they do nothing with it. You see, some people put Jesus in this category. Some people put Jesus in this category. Some people recognize who Jesus is, but then they walk away and they are not changed. But it's not enough to just know who Jesus is. The demon in the beginning of our story, I can assure you, knows who Jesus is. The demon has good theology. The demon is not a Christian. You see, a Christian needs to know who Jesus is, but that's only where it starts. The question is, what do you do then? Once you see who Jesus is and what Jesus does, what do you do then? Jesus says, it matters how you live. It matters what your life looks like. Not that obedience will save you. But if there is no obedience... There is no salvation. Those that can see Jesus for who he is, yet won't obey him, are no different than the skeptics and the slanderers. It's just another form of unbelief. So do you fit in any of those categories? Where, where does that fit for you? Jesus teaches that one greater than Solomon and one greater than Jonah has come. Jesus surpasses the authority and the wisdom of Solomon. And his heart surpasses that of Jonah, who did not want Nineveh to repent. Jesus, though, calls for all men everywhere to repent. And then goes on, like Jonah, to spend three days in the darkness. Three days cast off the boat into the storm. And it says one greater than Jonah is here. So, so, so Jesus comes out of the darkness, comes out of the tomb, and in that we can find redemption for all of this. Jonah didn't desire repentance or redemption for Nineveh. But when Jesus, like Jonah, comes out of the darkness, comes out of where he was, and it says that he is greater than Jonah, that is, that is because in part he desires our repentance. He desires to see us come to him. But don't mistake the fact that he desires our repentance to mean that, that his message is any different than that of Jonas. Apart from him, he makes it clear, you will be judged. So where do you fit in this? Do you fit in any of these? What does your life look like? Does it, does it create a picture that says, 
I want to be exactly what Jesus says, blessed because I do, I hear and do the word of God. This is the message that he gives us. This is the hope that we have. That he is greater than Solomon and greater than Jonah. And that he desires our repentance. Let's pray. Father, it is our confession that for so many things that we see in your word, we so want to be those that are just looking on, that believe immediately, that, that, that have no skeptic, that, that, that don't, don't misunderstand you, and that do exactly what it is that you have laid out for us to do with no hesitations. But it is also our confession that we are not the obedient people that you have called us to be that we sin, that we fall short, that our unbelief comes out in so many different ways. And so, Father, I pray for us as a church, I pray for us as individuals, that we would be a people that both believe and then put into practice what we believe. That we would be obedient children that do the will and the word of God. Help us to see Jesus for who he is. And not be like those that were there that day that marveled at Jesus, but missed Jesus. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.